stay hungry, stay foolish. Before we launch into today's episode, I want to tell you there's a copy up for grabs. Just sign up to the innovationshow.io newsletter to be in the hat to win a copy of this magnificent book. Before we start, I want to thank our sponsor Zai, boldly transforming the future of financial services with a suite of embedded products and services, enabling businesses to manage multiple payment workflows and move funds with ease. It is a great pleasure to welcome the author of Quit, the power of knowing when to walk away. Annie Duke, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. I'm excited for this conversation. It's so good to have you on the show, Annie. I've been a long time reader of your work and particularly intrigued by you. I think you are a, a queen of reinvention. You are, uh, sh I've shown how you've done this. You've walked away, you've let a, that identity go, keeping the best parts of what you've done in the past and bringing them forward. Maybe we'll start with you and a little bit about your reinvention story. The question is, which reinvention? <laughs> <laughs> Even better. So let's see. So I started off my adult life in graduate school at the University of Pennsylvania, and I was studying cognitive psychology. My advisor was a wonderful, wonderful woman named Lila Gleitman. Um, and uh, at the time, UPenn was was one of the few places that had really embraced this new field called cognitive psychology. So at the time, this was pretty new. Uh, this idea about thinking about uh, how do we interact with the world? How do we model the world? How do we make sense of the world? Um, so it was it was like a really incredible department. John Barron was there, who's one of the giants in judgment and decision-making, for example. Um, so I was learning about, you know, cognitive biases, biases and heuristics. What I was studying in particular was first language acquisition, which seems relatively far afield from that. But that's why uh cognitive psychology as a field is so interesting because first language acquisition really goes under that how does uh, how does a child actually uh learn a language in in a situation where they they come in you know supposedly knowing nothing um uh and it's really how do you how do you learn in those systems something that's so uncertain as that my whole intention while I was in graduate school and I was there for five years was to get a job as a professor in a tenure track position. So uh, at the end of five years, I was uh, had secured a, a bunch of job talks at places like NYU, at Duke, um, UT Austin, a bunch of really great schools in the U.S., um, and I was about to go out for them when a chronic illness that I've been struggling with became quite acute. And I ended up in the hospital for a couple of weeks. Oh, unlucky. Um, obviously, I had to cancel my job talks and realize that I really need to take some time off from school before finishing up, um, you know, just in order to figure out what's going on and, and to heal myself. But when I left school, um, I had a little bit of a money problem <laughs> because. I, I was at UPenn on a National Science Foundation fellowship. And when I left, obviously, I didn't have my fellowship anymore. I, I couldn't teach to supplement my income, so on and so forth. So uh, honestly, like I just really needed money. Um, and also my dad was a school teacher and my mom didn't work. So that wasn't going to work well for me either. I, I couldn't just be like, hey, can you help me out? 
So um, that's when I discovered poker. Uh, I needed something that was flexible, that didn't feel to me like starting a brand new career because I was still planning to go back and finish my degree um, and, you know, go back on the uh, on the job market the next season. So I started playing poker in the meantime um, in order to in order just to support myself. So uh, one thing I want to just make clear about this time, though, is I think now I don't th- I'm not sure that people would think that that was such a strange choice now because poker is. I mean, you see it on television all the time and uh, poker players, you know, some poker players have sort of become like celebrities or stars. But back when this happened, this was before poker was on television and it was before Internet poker. So uh, at the time, it was, you know, people didn't really think about poker as anything other than gambling. They certainly didn't think about it as investing. And um, when I would um, tell people what I was doing at that time, I would generally get two categories of responses. One was, does your husband make a lot of money? I thought that was good. That was pretty misogynistic. Um, And the other was, uh, have you thought about Gamblers Anonymous? So this was really a time when, you know, poker was sort of put in, sort of clumped in with like vices or addiction or something like that as I was starting to play. But um, I played nonetheless. It it was my brother who actually introduced me to the game. and. I did really well at it, like from the get-go and really discovered a deep love for the game of poker. It was a lot of the things that I've been thinking about and studying in um, psychology when I was getting my degree uh, were just in a real way manifesting themselves at the poker table, both in terms of cognitive bias um, that you saw people displaying problems of uh, how do you make decisions, particularly in a high stakes, fast paced environment under these conditions of extreme uncertainty? How do you close feedback loops when it's really not clear in retrospect why you might've won or lost a single hand? These are all really deep problems in that game. Um, And I just really loved trying to solve that problem. So uh, I ended up not going back to graduate school, ended up continuing to play poker. This thing that I was supposed to do in the meantime, I did for 18 years until 2012. Um, and I did pretty well. I I won uh, a world championship and well, and then the NBC national heads up championship. I was the only woman to have done that the tournament of champions, a few things. So that was a quite a fruitful career, but um, eight years, I think eight years into my professional poker career, um, I got asked by a hedge fund to come and speak to their options traders about how poker might inform their thinking about risk. Um, it was actually quite funny because I was two weeks from having my last child. So I was incredibly pregnant when I gave, went and um, gave this talk uh, so much Joe, so that my feet were so swollen, I couldn't wear shoes. So I actually did it without shoes on um, just out of necessity. I'm like, I'm sorry. <laughs> like, you know, I don't know what to tell you. I, I put these heels on because I thought I could wear them, but I can't. And um, what I talked about actually was how poker informs the way that your risk attitudes get distorted in a lot of the ways that like Daniel Kahneman would talk about, um, depending on whether you were winning or losing recently in a game. And I really loved that collision of cognitive science and poker that I was now making explicit. I'm sure I'd been thinking about it for seven, for eight years, but not in that explicit way of how would I teach this to another person? How would I think about these ideas and really form them into coherent thoughts? 
And I loved it. And in that moment, I was reminded, number one, of of how much I love teaching. Um, number two, how much I love cognitive science. Um, and it w- and sort of in an in-your-face way, I realized that there was this really interesting conversation happening, at least in my head, between poker and cognitive science. So I started to build that business at the same time that I was doing poker. And for 10 years, I overlapped the two where I was doing a lot of speaking, uh, started um, exploring cons- business consulting also uh, as a sort of decision strategist, like specializing in decision-making under uncertainty. Um, I wrote a poker book or actually a few in the meantime, um, and then really wanted to uh, do two things. One is I started discovering that I was much happier doing the um, speaking and consulting work than I was playing poker. A lot of things about poker had changed um, and I was not enjoying the game. And I was finding myself spending most of my time on the on the um, other stuff that I was working on. And I really wanted to write this book, which was really kind of taking what I had been speaking out for about for 10 years and putting it in book form. So in 2012, I retired from poker, went into speaking and consulting full-time and uh, founded a nonprofit called the Alliance for Decision Education, trying to bring decision education to K through 12 education um, all over the world, actually. Um, and then I, I wrote this book, Thinking in Bets, which was what I've been thinking about for a long time. Then I wrote How to Decide. Uh, that was published two years later. Then I just finished Quit, and that was just published. Um, I continued to do the speaking and consulting, started shifting much more to consulting. I started to really find that I enjoy the deeper relationships with people. So um started to do more deep dive consulting with long-term relationships with my clients. And then as a CODA, uh, I'm now enrolled as a graduate student at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, Phil Tetlock, who wrote Super Forecasting, uh, and his wife, Barb Mellers, are my advisors. Um, I teach at Wharton. And I'm in, I do research in two labs and I should be defending my dissertation in January, February. So I made it all the way back as a coda. So there you go. I love stories like yours, because apart from your writing, your teaching, your nonprofit, we need to hear stories like that, because as you talk about in the book, and hopefully we'll get to many people cling to the identity they have created, and in doing so deny themselves these opportunities to reinvent and really use up life, milk life and have a very full experience as a result of that as well. So it's one of the reasons I'm so, so happy to have you on the show. I I didn't know that you had done that, that touch touched into by kind of biases before you became a poker player. That's what an, an advantage. I was what we call I, I, ABD. I don't know if you use that term in the UK. So ABD is all but doctored. So what that means is I had done my my I'd done everything that you needed to do in graduate school except defend my thesis. Um, and the only reason why I didn't defend it was because I got sick. Because I, I was go- I was already going out for job talks. I was going to start as a professor the next September. Um, and that's the, on- that's the only reason that I left. So um, I had done quite a bit of work in, in cognitive science prior to becoming a poker player. It was my original plan. When you study like that, and you've studied as deeply as you had, it gives you these lenses. And then you see the lenses come to life as you watch other players, not knowing when to fold them or when to hold them, all those type of things. And it's what what you bring to life in this book, which is what I love as well. I mentioned that purposefully, the Kenny Rogers songs, The Gambler, 
because you start the book with the tragic story of a hero who held on a little bit too long, which we all love and have loved in the past, Muhammad Ali. You know, what I think about the thing that is common through everything that I've ever done in my life is this total obsession with decision making under uncertainty. And, you know, I think that as we think about when we start things, what are the conditions under which we're starting them? It's it's under conditions of a very high degree of uncertainty for most things that we start doing. So when we, for example, if we start a job, what do we really know about the job, right? Like there's so much, we have such incomplete information. Like we know so little in comparison to all there is to be known. Like we've interviewed a few times, maybe we've asked some people about, you know, people who've exited or people who st- are still there or whatever, but we've never actually done the job. And then there's just the influence of luck. Like in my life, when I got sick, that's really a matter of luck, right? So um, what that inevitably means is that after you start something, after you make a decision, you're going to discover new information. That's just true. And um, when we discover that new information, the question is sort of how do we, once we start something, how do we act toward it? And culturally, we have a really big bias. And I'm sure you know this from, from playing rugby. We have this big bias for the admiration of those who persevere you know, who play through injuries, who don't walk off the field, who keep going. Um, So much so that if you were to look up, um, if you were to look up like synonyms in a thesaurus for grit, you would find like heroism in there. Like, you know, we really think like, you know, well, I mean, like, you know, uh, if you, first you don't succeed, try, try again. Winners never quit. Quitters never win. Like it's really embedded in the language that um, perseverance is the way to go. The issue though, is that sometimes after you start things, that new information you find out is bad news. And if it's bad news, then why is grit a virtue in that case, right? Like, why is it that we just sort of think about it as this one-sided equation, like quitters or losers, and people who stick to it are the heroes of our stories, kind of no matter what, because there has to be some point at which it's folly. And this brings us to Muhammad Ali, who I think is a wonderful story of both, of both values that, you know, as I say in the book, like the opposite of a great virtue is also a great virtue. And I think that Muhammad Ali is the embodiment of how uh, the opposite of a great virtue is also a great virtue. So Muhammad Ali starts off his boxing career. He, and for those who don't know, one of the, I mean, probably the greatest of all time in terms of um, boxing history. So he starts off his career as Cassius Clay, um, which was his given name. And he wins the heavyweight title against Sonny Liston in a situation where Sonny Liston was incredibly heavily favored. Um, Ali wins the title. And he was just, a, he was really an amazing boxer. He actually wasn't that huge. He was just really fast. So his whole mantra was like, um, float like a butterfly, sting like a bee, because he was so fast on his feet that people couldn't hit him. Like it was really hard to land a punch on him. And he'd be like bobbing and weaving. And then boom, he'd like, you know, and then he'd land a punch. And um, and this was the way that he won his fights. So he's heavyweight champion of the world. Um, at 
somewhere along the way, he converts and becomes Muhammad Ali. Okay. As part of that conversion, when uh, the U.S. gets embroiled in the Vietnam War, he becomes a conscientious objector to the Vietnam War. Uh, so he refuses to um, enter the draft because he doesn't believe in the war. Um, so now they strip him of his heavyweight title. So he's stripped of his title. Not only that, he's he can't get licensed. So he's not just stripped of his title, but he cannot box during this time. This goes on for a few years. Obviously, the Vietnam War lasted quite a long time. Um, and once the war was over and he could fight again, Muhammad Ali had to work his way up. So just because he used to be heavyweight champion, he still has to start at the bottom. So the way it works in boxing is you, you know, you, you sort of get fights. And as you win fights, you get a shot at someone who's a little bit higher ranked, so on and so forth, until you finally get your title shot. And this takes him four years. So this is already from the time he'd already taken all this time off. He's now been boxing for four more years. He finally gets his top title shot. He's already in his early 30s, which for a boxer is quite old. Um, and the title shot is a, against a guy named George Foreman. And George Foreman is huge and a beast. And I mean, I his fights last less than three rounds. I mean, because he just walks into the to the ring and he's humongous and he just punches you and you fall down and he wins the fight. So um, he is undefeated. Ali is old and Ali is a huge underdog. So people are really naysaying, like there's no way that he can beat George Foreman. But, um, you know, Muhammad Ali really believes in himself. And I think that this is really part of the virtue of grit, right? Is that uh, it can really get you to stick to to things that are worthwhile, even when they're hard, right? And even when some people at least are saying, no, you can't do this, it will get you to stick to things in order to be able to achieve great things. So he's stuck, sticks to it. He uh, fights in the rumble in the jungle um, uh, and um, goes into the ring. And it's interesting. He's now changed his strategy. So remember, his strategy before was float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. He now switches to something called rope-a-dope. And rope-a-dope is basically, look, this guy's really big, but his fights never go more than a few rounds. So he, ha I think he has no endurance. So I'm going to make George Foreman go the distance. And if he does, he's going to tire out and I'll be able to win that way which means that Ali is laying against the ropes. That's the rope-a-dope. Laying against the ropes, just basically every round getting pummeled by Foreman. So Foreman is like winning every round because he's pummeling um, Ali. But as Ali suspected, um, Foreman doesn't have the endurance and Ali wins the fight. Uh, but it goes, you know, I mean, it goes like, I think at that time flight, fights went 15 rounds. I mean, I think it went 15 rounds. So he really takes this horrible beating, but he does end up winning the heavyweight title back. So great. So that's like such a great story about grit. We can see, you know, he had what it took. He stuck to his guns on the Vietnam War. He then, you know, fights his way back to the title champion champ, and he finds a way, he finds a strategy that allows him to win against this undefeated fighter. But then where we can see that the opposite of that virtue is also a virtue, in other words, figuring out when you should quit is also a virtue, is with what happens after that for Ali. Oops, my dog has joined the party. Hi, Otis. <laughs> um, what is he or she? He's a, he's a, a, he's a mini Bernadoodle. He's very cute. <laughs> he's a Bernie's Mountain Dog combined with a poodle. 
Um, so, um, okay. So, so let me go back to this. So where we can see that, that quit, that the ability to figure out when you should walk away from something is also a virtue is what happens after this form and fight. So, um, okay. He's going now. <laughs> Here we go. Okay. So Ali continues to fight and you know, again, he's not as fast as he used to be. So his strategy is now to take a lot of punches and he's in his thirties and there's only so many punches someone in their thirties can take before you start to see physical damage, which is exactly what you start to see with Ali. So, um, you're seeing some, you're definitely seeing some signs of neurological damage. I mean, he's taking a lot of hits to the head. Um, and you're seeing some signs of kidney damage and Teddy Brenner who was the fight promoter for Madison Square Garden. So this was obviously, you know, Ali fought there a lot and become quite good friends with Ali actually, uh, went to Ali and said, look, I don't want you to be responsible for, you know, you coming to me one day and not knowing who I am because you've taken so many punches to the head. So he advised him that he felt that he should retire, that he should quit. And Ali does not heed the advice and decides to continue fighting. At which point, Teddy Brenner actually quits him. So this is a pretty strong signal, right? Like, this is a very good friend of his, really loves him, and says, you're not fighting at Madison Square Garden anymore because I just don't want any part of the physical damage and the decline that I'm starting to see. So Ali ignores him, keeps fighting. Teddy Brenner quits him. And just a bit later, Ferdy Pacheco, who is um, Ali's fight doctor, and again, remember, like has a vested interest in some ways in Ali continuing to fight because he's making money. Uh, but Ali is a very good friend of his who he he loves. Um, and he gets a report back. He gets, you know, some very bad uh, news about um, Ali's kidneys, that there is damage occurring to his kidneys. So Ferdy Pacheco says, look, you really need to stop because you've got, you have to stop taking these punches to your kidneys. We're seeing a lot of damage there. Ali refuses. So Ferdy Pacheco quits him. So we can see here now part of the problem with the flip side of grit, right? Which is that grit gets you to stick to things, as I said, that are worthwhile, even when they're hard and even when people are saying no. But grit also gets you to stick to hard things that aren't worthwhile, even when people are screaming at you to stop, which is what's happening here. So he keeps fighting. And what happens after that is just really sad. You know, I mean, he he fights Leon Sphinx and loses to, to Sphinx and Sphinx, I think it was Leon Sphinx seventh time in a professional fight. Uh, Larry Holmes gives him such a beating in Las Vegas that Holmes cried, literally cried after the bout that he had beaten up one of his heroes so badly. Eventually, Ali can't even get licensed in the U.S., which at the time was almost impossible because there was just like race to the bottom standards across states. And he has to fight overseas um, in a, a horrible spectacle where they only had two sets of boxing gloves. So like all the fighters had to share gloves and they had a literal cowbell to signal the rounds. And I mean, he just kept going for like, you know, seven more years. And we know what happened after that when you saw Ali, you know, as he got older with Parkinson's syndrome and just, you know, I and mean, this was someone who was like incredibly sharp and incredibly fleet of foot and, you know, slow, shaking, you know, 
irreversible kidney damage, everything that Ferdy Pacheco and Teddy Brenner had foreseen. And that was really, you know, the rest of Ali's life was really negatively impacted for that, um, from that. So I think that we need to really look at Ali and say, grit isn't always good, that you have to think about the context and you have to think about what the signals are in the world that you're getting in figuring out whether it's right to persevere, or whether it's right to cut your losses. It's such a great impactful story to start the book with. And you talk about this duality of grit versus quit that's constant, you know, and, and I thought about how you mentioned your stroke of luck, which was when you were ill, and then you learned poker, etc. And, and these sometimes closed doors open new ones that we would have never opened in the first place. But I thought about that with Ali that he discovered a formula that worked. And that's one of the problems you discover a formula that works that happens in organizations all the time, this formula works, and then I can't let go of that. And then you have all the different effects like the endowment effect, Ikea effect that we'll talk about in a little while. But this is really the big problem. And you say that I loved your metaphor of the gaffed scale, and that the scale is tilted towards grit over quit. So just so people know what gaffing is, um, back in the days of like carnival barkers, when people would have like wheels that you would spin, you could gaff the wheel so that it would, uh, to guarantee like Aiden, if you were betting in a carnival, you wouldn't win. Um, and then like we think about the butcher putting the thumb on the scale, that would be a way to gaff it. Um, I think during the gold rush, there would be gaff scales when they would like be weighing the gold of the prospectors. Um, uh, and so it's something that tilts a scale toward one direction or another. So um, look, here's the thing about grit and quit. They're the exact same decision. This is a thing that we do not realize. We think about them as polar opposites, as opposing forces, but they're really not. They're the exact same decision. At any time that you have already started something, you have a choice whether to stick to it or whether to walk away. If you choose to stick to it, you're by definition not walking away. If you choose to walk away, you're by definition not sticking to it. So it's always a matter of what's right. It's a, it's really like a scale. It's how are you calibrated between the sticking and quitting part of the equation. And when I say the gale is scaffed, it, gaffed, it means it's tilted toward a big favoring of grit. And we can see that, as I said, in the aphorisms about winners never quit, quitters never win. If I called you a quitter, I would clearly be insulting you. I mean, I might not be, but uh, if someone called you a quitter, they would, you know, they'd be calling you a loser, basically. When we look at the synonyms for the two words, at least in the English language, um, it's all like, you know, metal and stick to And I mean, grit builds character. It's heroic, right? Um, tough. You're tough right? Which is a great thing. Um, and yeah, I mean, there's, there's a few things like, you know, stubborn and rigid um, that describe grittiness. But mostly when you look, I mean, I, you can just go look at a thesaurus, you'll see that almost all the definitions are quite positive. Whereas, um, or all the synonyms are quite positive. When you look at the word quit, it's quite the opposite, right? It's like lily-livered coward, basically. <laughs> Weak-willed. Um, quitting shows a lack of character. And again, there's a few synonyms like uh, flexible or agile that, um, you know, are, are kind of a positive way to think about quitting, but mostly it's very negative. And even think about 
the heroes of our stories, right? And who are the cowards? Who are who are the villains? The anti-heroes in our story our stories. Like obviously the people who stick to it, um, you know, are the heroes of the stories, right? Whether it's, you know, go back to like the song of Roland and and you're gonna find that. And the people who sort of run away, as they say, and live to fight another day are not really the heroes of our story. Um, so it's just kind of how it is. And then you can add on to that, you know, survivorship bias that, again, because the stories we hear about are the ones that stuck to it in the worst possible conditions and happen to succeed, you know, that we just think like stick to things and you will succeed. But that's silly. Of course, that's not true. It's just that if someone succeeded at something, they stuck to it. Um, that's only true in retrospect, not not prospectively. Um so I, I just think that the, the scale is so incredibly tilted towards sticking to it that, and I'm going to say something that I think is um, maybe challenging, is that sticking to it is easy and quitting is actually an act of courage. Amen. Amen. I, 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 Annie, I'm so glad you said that because there's so many people I know who are maybe running startups and they're funding it themselves, you can see the challenge it is for them and for their family as well. And then there's other people stuck in relationships, there's some people living lives that they haven't even written their own script for it's maybe what their parents expectations are. And you can see where it's going and it's going towards resentment and illness, I think is just resentment, the body just kind of going, I can't do this anymore. And I, I it's one of the the whole ideas of this is, uh, hopefully Annie's book can put you on a different path, or at least go look, there is another way of thinking about this. And as you show throughout the book, there's many ways to understand this through cognitive biases as well, maybe an example we'll give. Because your dog is a mountain dog as well. It's a nice little, <laughs> a nice little uh, segue is towards Everest because I, I'd like to pose this question to Rhodes. Imagine you had been training for years for to climb Everest, you'd invested a huge amount of money, you had your Sherpas, you'd been out there. And you were told you have to turn back and you can't climb the mountain. What do you do? And Annie gives a magnificent story about this in the book. Here's the interesting thing is, and I think this is really important, like I'll pose another thing. Uh, if you had to turn around at base camp, so you hadn't really started up the mountain. I think that that's an easier choice because you haven't actually really started. But here's the, here's the one that I would pose for you, Aiden. What would feel worse to you? Never having started up Everest in the first place. So you've climbed zero, right? Or climbing 29,000 feet of the air, in the air and falling 300 feet short of the summit and having to turn around which feels worse. Absolutely, when you're near the top. And, and you know, and, and like you said about the, the gaffed scale, for the rest of your life, you're almost apologizing about that. Well, you climbed 29,000 feet in the air. Like, that's a hell of a thing to do. But notice it counts for zero. And this is where like, we get this huge distortion from this problem that we have from walking away from things is that we would prefer never to have tried at all than to have gotten 300 feet short. That's right. I mean, 
Think about how that's distorting the paths of our lives because we can all feel that. You know, Richard Thaler said said to me, who's a, a, won a Nobel laureate in economics. So um, I usually try to pay attention when they say things to me, when Nobel laureates say things to me. But he said, if if a gold medal is the only definition of success, why would you ever take your first gymnastics lesson? Right. So, um, you know, I think that, I think that this is, I think that that's a really big problem is what happens when you're, when you're close and you have to turn around. Right. And this is part of the reason why I say like, it's an act of courage because you have to, you're going to have to live with the knowledge that people are, everybody's going to be like, why'd you turn around? You were so close. You didn't keep going up. Um, and you have to you have to saddle yourself with the what if I had kept going, which I think is really hard. And then on top of it, we just don't we don't hear the stories of the people who turned around. So we hear the stories of the heroic people who kept going or whatever, and we actually would prefer that they keep going and maybe perish than than turn around and live. We just it's just not part of our narrative. So. I want to tell a story of three people like that because I think that this is like a totally heroic move. Um, so the three climbers I want to tell a story about are Dr. Stuart Hutchinson, John Tasky, and Dr. Lucas Hiskey. And they were three climbers in the 90s, part of a climbing expedition of eight climbers, three climbing Sherpas, and an expedition leader. Um you know, and this was a time when it was becoming very, very popular to climb Everest. It's a, at the time, I think it was seventy or seventy-five thousand dollars to be able to go do it. Um, so that's a big investment of money, uh, which becomes important. I'm sure we'll talk about how the money uh, influences and time and effort and training. It's like I think you have to train for like nine months or something for this. You're sacrificing a lot to do it. So anyway, they they head up the mountain. And they get to camp four. So the way it works on Everest is you start at base camp, then you do a few climbs to camp one, uh, which is higher up, obviously, then a few climbs from camp one to camp two, then from camp two to camp three, from camp three to camp four. So this is all to help acclimate you to the altitude. Um, And then you get to camp four. And when you leave camp four, it's summit day. So uh, on summit day, the expedition leader has had impressed upon everybody Uh, the turnaround time for summit day. So a turnaround time when you're mountain climbing basically is if you're not at the summit by this time of day, in other words, no matter where you are on the mountain, I don't really care uh, at this time of day, if you, you just have to turn around. And so on summit day, that time of day is 1 PM. So no matter where you are in the mountain, whether you've made it to the summit or not, if it gets to be 1 p.m., you have to turn around. The reason why they set these turnaround times is that they recognize the problem that we just talked about, that when you're in the shadow of the summit, you're probably going to make pretty bad decisions about whether you should continue or not. And so they set these turnaround times in advance uh, to help people turn around so that they can get back down the mountain safely, which is kind of ultimately the goal. And why is it 1 p.m. that you want to that you want to turn around at? Well, because if you turn around later than 1 p.m., there's too great a chance that you're going to be descending some very dangerous parts of the mountain in darkness, particularly something called the Southeast Ridge, which is incredibly narrow and you have to go single file. And if you fall, you're either going to fall all the way into Tibet to your death or all the way into Nepal to your death. You take your pick. Um, I don't think either one would be particularly good. Um, so they're trying to sort of save you from the dangers of descent in darkness. So our three climbers, Hutchison, Tasky, and Kasitsky, 
are uh, climbing and they're basically caught in a traffic jam on the mountain. And the traffic jam is, as I, as I told you, uh, it had gotten very popular to climb Everest. So there were a lot of people trying to summit on the same day. You kind of have to go single file-ish up the mountain. And so if the people in front of you are going slow, that obviously slows down uh, the whole pack because there's more than just their expedition trying to summit that day. There's many expeditions trying to summit that day. So there's over 30 people trying to go up that mountain at the same time. So very slow going. Their expedition leader comes up behind them. Hutchinson stops the expedition leader and says, hey, I just want to know how much longer is it until we get to the summit from here because it seems like we're going pretty slow. And the expedition leader tells him uh, three hours. And then the expedition leader scurries ahead um, to try to get sort of past this clump of people that are in front of them. Hutchinson holds Tasky and Kasitsky back and says, look, I think we have a problem. Um, The turnaround time is 1 p.m. That's been made very clear to us. And I'm looking at my watch right now, and it's 11.30. And so if it's three hours to the summit from here, that means we're not even going to get to the summit till 2.30. Like, even if we went really fast, we'd get there at 2 p.m. And that's already an hour past the turnaround time. So it seems to me that we've already hit the turnaround time. We really ought to turn around and go back to Camp 4. Um, It took a tiny bit of convincing, but he did convince them to turn around. And they all went back. And they lived. So I'm sure, Aiden, you can tell, you know, it's not surprising to you that you don't know the story. It's not really the stuff that movies are made of. It's no song of Roland, that's for sure. <laughs> you know, it's not like the, you know, King Arthur's court or anything, right? Um, Sir Lancelot, <laughs> whatever, like the none of that is going on here. They just They just followed the rules and they turned around and they went back and they lived. So that's, you know, it's not exciting. So uh, here's the thing about this story, though, is that, well, let me ask you, have you read the book Into Thin Air by John Krakauer? You mentioned it in the book as well. I didn't read it, but I'd heard of it. Yeah. And well, and then there's also a documentary called Everest. A Netflix documentary. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a movie called Everest, which stars Jake Gyllenhaal. Yeah, and th- those are so the documentary actually was filmed at the same time it, it, that John Krakauer was was uh, summiting that mountain and uh, to write this book about climbing Everest, and um and then of course the the movie was based on the book Into Thin Air, um so here's the interesting thing right so I I know lots and lots and lots of people who've read that book including me, who had no memory whatsoever of these three guys. Like they're they're completely invisible to you. Um, So I was like, well, maybe he didn't write about them. Like maybe they weren't in the book, but they were. They were totally in the book. And not only were they in the book, but John Krakauer said they were the best decision makers on the mountain that day. So these are very prominent characters in the book. And yet we don't remember them at all. Who do we remember? We remember Rob Hall who was the expedition leader who told them it was going to be three hours to the summit. Very experienced alpinist, kept going. I told you he scurried ahead to make up time. He got to the t- to the summit at 2 p.m. So that's an hour past his own turnaround time. He then waits for two hours up at the top for a guy named Doug Hansen to get to the top. He arrives at 4 p.m. and immediately collapses and dies like right away after making it to the summit. 
Now, you might say, well, that was very heroic of Rob Hall to wait at the top of the mountain for his client to get there so that he could help him get down safely. Except that, as you recall, I told you that it's kind of a it's kind of a one lane highway up to the top of the mountain. And I actually asked somebody about this and Rob Hall could have turned around himself and caught Doug Hansen on the way down and taken him back down with him, but he didn't do that. So uh, Doug, Doug Hansen immediately collapses. And then Rob Hall, who's been waiting up there forever, is out of oxygen, um, doesn't have the energy to be able to get back down himself. And he too perishes on top of the mountain. And he's the hero of the story. He's the protagonist. These other three guys who just followed the rules and turned around, nobody even remembers them. It's like they made no impression whatsoever. And I think that's part of our problem. That's a, such a huge part of the problem. Annie, I'm going to share a quote with you. Um, a mentor of mine, a magnificent man, he was the founder of Visa, a guy called D. Hawk, had this quote from his book. And when I read this part of your book, I was like, I have to share this with Annie. He said, the person who fights for a dying cause is admired, supported and honored. The person who fights for a new cause struggling to be born is misunderstood, reviled and attacked. Nothing is more difficult than taking the lead in the new order of things. Now, the reason I'm sharing that is I have this concept of those three guys. Now, the reason we, re we will remember them now is because the other guys died. But if nobody else died, we cut it, we probably would have thought differently about that decision as well. And it makes me think about how organizations put things in place to avoid a potential iceberg, potentially, we might go that way, or how, for example, we didn't put anything in place for a pandemic decades ago across the world, or for floods down in New Orleans, or whatever it might be, because it's easier to react after there has been a problem than to be proactive and, and walk away in this case, or shutter a business or give up the ghost on some challenge, you maybe you want to be a professional sports player, whatever it is. That's the problem. So you bring up something really interesting, right? Like I want to talk about the fighting for a dying cause. So something that's already occurring versus starting something new. Um, so here's the part I, I opened with, um, you know, in this conversation right here, that when we make decisions, we're making them under conditions of uncertainty, right? So, um, and that comes in two forms, just plain old luck, right? Like I could make a great decision that's going to work out 80% of the time. And by definition, it's not going to work out 20% of the time. And I don't have any control over when I'm going to see the 20% occur. It's just going to occur 20% of the time. That's the only thing I know. But then on top of that plain old influence of luck, so the pandemic would go under that category of, of Look, you know, obviously I didn't have any control over whether a pandemic broke out across the world, but it had an effect on my life and 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 your life, right? So uh, that stuff happens. There's just the influence of like other people's decisions on us over which we have no control. Um, the way that the world goes, whether it's a pandemic or I don't have control over there being a recession or that kind of thing. Um, but then there's also incomplete information that whenever I decide something, um, I, again, as I said, for most things, I know very little in comparison to all there is to be known. And so we have to, when we're starting things, we have to start under those conditions of uncertainty. Now, once we've started them, we're going to learn new stuff. All right. And we have the intuition, and I assume you share this, Aiden, that when we learn that new stuff, 
well, we'll react to it in some kind of rational way. So if if the new stuff that we learn is bad news, like, um, oh, I just got an x-ray of my kidney that looks really bad, that, you know, that I'll stop boxing. And decades of science, really starting with someone named Barry Staw, shows us that that, that intuition is bonkers. Like, so wrong that the intuition is bonkers, that we don't stop when we get that bad news. So why? Well, part of it is sort of paradoxical, right? That when we start things, we're starting them under conditions of uncertainty. We're going to learn a whole bunch of new stuff, that feeling of, I wish I knew then what I know now. That's that feeling of like, oh, you know, I discovered new information after I started this thing. And we're given a gift in this life. And that gift is that when we discover the bad news, we can quit. We can change our minds. We can change our beliefs when we get new information. We can walk away from what we're doing. When we decide we don't like a job, we can stop and go get another one. Most of the time, some people obviously are a little bit more um, bound to their jobs than other, depending on what their position in life is. But this is an opportunity available to, to many of us. So the question is, why don't we take the opportunity? That's the big question, right? Why is it that we've been given this gift and we don't take it? And it's because this is the paradox. The decision to walk away from something is also made under conditions of uncertainty. In other words, when it's the right time to walk away from something, it is going to be before you have already fallen into the crevasse, right? So if we think about Hutchinson, Tasky, and Kasitsky, What particularly bad is happening to them at the moment that they turn around? Nothing. They have tons of oxygen. They don't have frostbite. It's a clear day. It's just it's 1130 and they figured out. They've looked into the future. They have a vision of the future that tells them that things are going to go poorly and they're going to turn around. Now, what's remarkable about that is that most of us are incapable of that because if there's a shot, that we can turn the cause around. We want to stick to it for a variety of reasons. One is we're uncomfortable making decisions under uncertainty. And we can see this in the starting, right? Like a lot of times we won't start things. This is like paralysis by analysis, right? We won't start things, whether it's for fear of it not working out or we want to get more information so we can be sure it's the right choice or whatever. So we're slow to do that. And those forces also influence our decision to quit. We want to know. But the thing we want to know is how the thing we've already started is going to turn out. And the only way to do that is to continue on that path until we butt up against the dead certainty that there is nothing else we can do to recover the cause. So that's kind of an internal issue. But then we also have the external issue, which is, as you said, right, when you turn around 300 feet from the summit, you've got to live with telling that story and people saying to you, what the hell? But what if you're caught in a snowstorm? What if what if you kept going, even though the weather looked really bad and you were past the turnaround time and then a blizzard set in? Now, when you tell people you turn around, they'll go, what could you do? Because it's already a certainty. You can see this in startup founders, right? What do startup founders do? Do they return the capital? Rarely. Even when the signs are all there that what you as a brilliant person who really has the ability to change the world 
the thing that you happen to be working on isn't going to do that. You're not finding product market fit, right? Like you just can't, AR isn't growing. You can't gain any traction. Maybe in a, in a market that's growing, you can't gain any traction and the signs are there for you, right? And you're so brilliant. It's like, if you shut it down, return the capital and switch to something new, you'd actually be more likely to achieve your goal, but you don't do that. What do they do instead? They run it until there's no money left and they can't raise their next round. Why? Because there's a peace of mind that comes from that. What could I do? I tried everything, both for yourself and explaining to other people why you had to abandon the cause. That's when we'll finally release ourselves from what we're doing. And the problem is that that really slows us down in life. Because if you're brilliant, Work on something that's going to change the world. The minute you figure it out, the minute you figure out the thing I'm not doing isn't worthwhile, switch. And the the way that I try to put it, it's like in the simplest sense of the terms, if I'm on a road and there's really heavy traffic, I should exit the road and find a new route because that will get me to my destination faster. And what's true of being in a car in traffic is true whether you're going up Everest or you have a startup or you're in a dead-end job or you're in a bad relationship, as soon as you see the signals, and remember, when it's objectively correct to quit, nothing particularly bad is going to be happening to you. When you see those signals, switch as quickly as possible because in sticking to the thing to get to a dead certainty, you're giving up all the other opportunities, all the gains that you could be accruing from other paths that you might be taking that you're foregoing in service of trying to find out for sure. Beautiful, beautiful, Annie. And, you know, just to even bring this down so concretely for people, it's even when you're in that supermarket queue and that cashier, <laughs> as Annie says in the book, is faster, she's plowing through people, but you've already committed to your queue. Do you jump the queue? It even happens at that low level. And why don't people jump the queue? They say, it, they say this every time. They go, I don't want to, I'll, I don't want to have wasted my time. This is, this is what they say. And it's very similar to, so one of the things that, that I point out is that um, in poker, the best players quit a lot more than amateurs do. It's actually, I would say the main distinguishing factor of of uh of poker players so poker players are really trying to concentrate their capital and we can think about capital as money but also time and attention effort um so you're spending uh, you're spending capital when you're waiting in the grocery queue right okay so um so we're trying to concentrate it on on the best opportunities the best hands that are available to us so what that means is that on that those when those first two cards are dealt in, in the game of Texas Hold'em what you'll see is that uh, the great players play about 15 to 25% or so of those uh, two-card starting combinations, whereas um, amateurs will play over 50% of them. So what that means is that uh, pros are just folding a lot more because they recognize, again, nothing particularly bad is happening to you at that moment. You haven't done anything yet, but they recognize that the hand is not worth investing more in. All right, so that's thing number one. But here, here's where you get the grocery uh, the grocery line problem is as an amateur gets involved in a hand, so now they've invested in the hand. So they bet before the flop and then the flop comes and they've bet more. So now they've started to invest, right? You'll hear them 
you'll see them rather continue to play hands they, they ought not to be playing and say out loud, well, I couldn't fold because I had too much money invested in the pot. And it's the exact same problem as the grocery line. I can't switch now because I've, this is my line. I've already been waiting in it. And if I switch, I'll have wasted my time. And this brings up a really important problem about another thing that stops us from quitting is that we cognitively think about waste as a backward looking problem, as a retrospective problem, right? That if I quit, it will mean I will have wasted all of the capital, all of the effort, the time, attention, money that I put into the cause. But waste is not a backward looking problem. That stuff is already gone. You already spent it. You already spent 10 minutes waiting in the line with the incredibly slow cashier with the person in front of you who has 17 million coupons that were hidden in their purse and you didn't see them until, and then also the cashier is like super chit-chatty and you're watching over in the other line as like three people for every one in your line goes through. And you know that if you switched, that you would get to where you want to go faster, which is, I assume, out of the store. But you don't because of the time you've already put into it. So that's that mistake of, of waste in as a retrospective, as a backward-looking problem. We have to realize that waste is a forward-looking problem, right? What I don't want to do is spend another minute in this line if it's not the right line that I ought to be in. I don't want to spend another minute working on this particular product that I'm trying to develop if it's the not, not the right product for me, if it's not the right product for the market, I should switch and try to develop something new that people will love. I don't want to spend spend another minute in this dead-end job or with a toxic team because I'm worried about all of the training that I did and onboarding and learning the culture and all the time that I've spent in this job because that means I'm going to waste another day or another week or another month or another year of my time in something that I already know is not for me when I could switch and go find something better for myself. And that's the crime, right? Is because we're so worried about wasting what has already been, we waste, we keep going forward. We keep forging ahead, battling for a losing cause. That's the actual waste. Let's bring it to life. So I mentioned for startups out there, I mentioned some startup founders, etc. You give a brilliant example of somebody who mentally time traveled into the future, saw that if I just keep throwing good money after bad, this is going nowhere, we're buying users here. This is the brilliant story of glitch. And maybe we'll contrast it then with the you mentioned Barry Stahl, but his family story. I, I want to tell you how I found out that story, by the way, because it was like super fun. But let's talk about Stuart Butterfield. So Stuart Butterfield, multi-time founder, um, he had founded in the early uh, 2000s um, a game called Game Never Ending because he he had always really loved uh, the internet. You know, he sort of grew up in the, you know, in the 90s um, and loved the idea of like the connectedness that it, it brought people. Um, and he just had a dream of creating a, a massive multiplayer online cooperative world building game. So he starts game never ending. Uh, the, the appetite, you know, this was right after the dot com crash. So the appetite for um, funding a game like that just wasn't really there. Um, and so he had to shut it down, uh, sort of the way that most startups shut down because he, he ended up not being able to continue to fund it. But he did recover one thing from it, which was a photo sharing part of the, um, 
uh, of the game where you, you basically it was a way to share items in your inventory that actually turned into Flickr, um, which was bought by Yahoo for $25 million. So like a modest success for, I mean, you know, obviously a startup founder is trying to create a unicorn, but it was a modest success. But after he rolled out of Yahoo, um, he had never really given up his dream of creating a massive multiplayer online world building game. So he creates a new company. He grabs his, you know, friends from Flickr, creates a new company called Tiny Spec, uh, and their product is a game called Glitch. And um, Glitch is an incredible game that has like amazing critics uh, reviews. Um, it was described as Doc- Dr. Seuss means Monty Python. So um, really lo- like the gaming community, like loved the look of the game. They loved the idea of the game. And indeed, um, they get to where they have 5,000 diehard users and they've gotten some funding, some some pretty like amazing um, venture firms, uh, Andreessen Horowitz and Accel. So at the point that we come to the story, they've got about $6 million in the bank. So they're very well funded. And again, they have 5,000 diehard users. The problem was that as Stuart Butterfield recognized that these 5,000 diehard users who were playing the game for more than 20 hours a week, and obviously they're the economic engine of the game, the people who are playing that much, um, for every, in order to get one of those, 95 to 99 other people had come and visited the game and only played for about seven minutes. Okay, so that creates like a user acquisition problem, right? Is that you need so many people to come sample the game in order to get the one that's really going to play the game a lot. So um, up until our point in the story, they had acquired these users, these these 5,000 diehard users through word of mouth. So it was really PR because remember, like people loved the game. They thought it was beautiful. So there were articles written about it. You know, he was the former founder of Flickr, you know, so he could get some press. Um, and they were really relying on that, you know, PR and word of mouth. So uh, they sort of huddle up, you know, the founders and the investors and say, okay, we know we recognize this problem. Um, what are we going to do about it? And they make a decision that they're going to go to more traditional marketing routes. So they're going to do paid advertising, which they do. And they plan out a six-week push of paid a- advertising. This was in the fall of 2012. And man, it goes well. So week over week, they're acquiring new users at about 6% um, uh, growth each week. So that's pretty massive and pretty exciting. Um, And so they get to the last weekend, which was actually their best weekend of user acquisition yet. Um, And that was the weekend of November 11th and 12th. So that Sunday night, Butterfield goes to bed and just a very restless night, finds himself kind of unable to sleep. And in the morning, he gets up. And he writes an email to his co-founders and his investors. He says, I woke up this morning with the dead certainty that Glitch was over. So this is strange, right? Um, It's the opposite of what we said, right? Where people really like to butt up against that certainty that, um, you know, you're out of cash. Remember, they have six million in the bank, right? That you're out of cash, that you've done everything that you can, that you have no choice. And here we're in a situation where they have six million in the bank and they've just had their best six weeks, what's you know, so far of acquiring users. So the question is, why did he say this? Um, and so he explained it because his investors and co-founders were like quite taken aback. And he said, Well, look, here's the problem. 
we're doing this paid marketing. And uh, yeah, we grew a lot of users, but uh, I realized what was bothering me was that if we continued to acquire users at this rate, that we wouldn't even break even until 31 weeks from now. And that's a really big if. Because obviously when you're doing paid advertising, at some point you've reached the people who would really have an interest in the game. So it was he decided he thought, and I think I agree, I assume you agree, that it's a very bad assumption that they're going to continue to to grow six or seven percent week over week. Um and so the cost of acquiring one cost customer was going to continue to grow and customer acquisition was going to slow down, in his opinion, at which point 31 weeks was an absurd assumption. And at that moment, he realized it wasn't a venture scale business. And not only was he in it for a venture scale business, but I think this was really important in his thinking is that he felt, you know, really a moral obligation to his employees to uh, shut it down for the reason that these were people who were also very brilliant, who had come to work for him for very little cash comp in exchange for equity. And he had come to the realization that the equity wasn't worth it. And if he knew the equity wasn't worth it, then it wasn't worth it for them. And if he knew that and didn't do something about it, he would have considered that to be immoral. So he felt a very strong moral obligation to allow his employees to go at the moment that he realized that the equity that they were working for wasn't worth their time. Now, notice, by the way, that this is the opposite of the way most people think, because what you'll hear from founders is, I owe it to my employees to keep going. So he realized I owe it to my employees to stop, which he did. So um, he he shut it down and... Uh, you know, and I asked him actually, I said, you know, did your co-founders and your investors ever get it? Like you explained this reasoning about how you were looking into the future in the same way that Hutchinson, Tasky, and Kasichki had looked into the future and saw that they weren't going to get to the top of the mountain until two or two thirty. This is what Butterfield has done. Um, nothing dire is happening. They have lots of money. They just acquired a bunch of customers. I said, did they get it? He said, you know, I don't know. I don't really know if they got it, but I think they just sort of figured if I wasn't into it, there wasn't really much that they could do. And in fact, he said, I realized in retrospect, and I think this is so important, that I had quit too late, that I knew six weeks before, before we ever did the marketing push, that I needed to shut it down. But I was afraid that people were going to think that I had just gotten bored or that I was capricious and I needed more proof for myself and to be able to tell them that it wasn't going to work. And that proof I got from the marketing push. So even he said, I did it too late. This is a brilliant quitter. Now, so I think that that right there is a happy a happy ending to a story. I really do. He realized the equity wasn't worth anyone's time. He ret- offered to return the capital back to the investors. He, you know, freed up his employees to go work at a company where the equity would be worth something. Um, And, you know, if that was it, that was it, but it's not it. And I think this is another really important lesson about quitting because what happened was two days later, I mean, this is obviously he's a founder at heart. Two days later, he's starting to think about, well, what's my next thing going to be? And he realizes, oh, we have an internal communication tool here at tiny spec which people really like and it was a ways for it was a way for teams to communicate each other with each other that kind of combined the best of email and and text messaging and 
you could like attach things and it was a great way for teams to share. And, but like they had been using it for a while within the company and people loved it, but like, so not a thing that they didn't even have a name for it. So he says, okay, well, I should really come up with a name for it. And the name he came up with was searchable log of all company knowledge. And the acronym for that is Slack. Cha-ching. So So obviously he offers for the investors to roll their money over into that, which they did. Um, you know, he kept as many employees as he could as they they started that. We know that it sold to Salesforce um, for about $20 billion. Now, why why is this an important lesson? Well, the lesson isn't that that's what makes it a happy story, a happy ending. I mean, it, obviously it was a happy ending, but I just want to emphasize that shutting it down at a time when you realize, shutting glitch down the game at a time when he realized it wasn't going to be a venture scale business is a happy ending. The lesson that I want people to take from this is to understand that when you are pursuing a goal, as you said, continuing to battle in that losing fight, right? When you are doing that, it prevents you from being able to see other stuff. It creates a myopia that makes it hard for you to see the other opportunities that might be available to you. And oftentimes, it's only after we free ourselves up by quitting that we then can see kind of like, oh, here are all the other things I could be doing. Here are the other opportunities that are available to me. So let's remember for Stuart Butterfield that Slack was right under his nose for a very, very long time. Like they were using that in that company and he did not see it for the venture scale opportunity that it was until he had quit glitch. And I think that's the important lesson to learn is that we think that quitting is gonna slow us down. That is our intuition. If we quit, it's going to stop our progress. But when we quit something that isn't working, it speeds us up because it allows us to move to other opportunities that we may not have explored at all or even seen sometimes when they're right under our nose that are going to get us to where we want to go faster. And just like for Stuart Butterfield, that's what happened to me. I got sick. So I had to stop graduate school at least temporarily. And and that's what allowed me to find poker. And poker had been under my nose. My brother played it. I had played it on a few vacations. I enjoyed the game. I just never really thought about it as something that I would pursue as a career. And the only reason why I explored it is because I stopped doing the other thing. So I think that's the, that's the real lesson here. Twofold, look ahead and realize that you have to be really good at sort of looking into the future to figure out when the right time to quit is. And even Stuart Butterfield felt he quit too late, which is generally what we do. And recognize that when you're when you're involved in something and you stick to those losing causes, whether it's a grocery line, a startup, a job, a relationship, whatever, it's preventing you from seeing the other stuff that you could pursue it, be pursuing that would actually help you to achieve your goals uh, more fully. With your case, we're getting sick. Oftentimes, it's like the pandemic was that for many people, they, their business stopped the way it was, or maybe their job stopped the way it was. And they had a moment to kind of go, Oh, hey, this other thing I was doing, this hobby is actually much more, I'm much more passionate about this, and I pour more energy into that. And that becomes a new business for lots of people. And if there's any way we've had a a lesson in life in the last couple of years, that's been it for so many people. I think the pandemic uh, is such really shows us this so clearly. So with the great resignation, I think that the general sort of the way that um, it's sold is that everybody was quitting. 
Um, and that's not actually the case. Not everybody was quitting. It was a very particular subset of people who were quitting. Um, and that subset of people were the people who were forced to quit when the pandemic started. So for me, I wasn't forced to quit my job when the pandemic started. My job moved seamlessly onto Zoom. I mean, I'm a consultant, right? Like I do executive coaching. I work with teams. I can do that on Zoom just as well as I can do that on person. In fact, uh, it's much more convenient for me to do it on Zoom. Um, but that's not true for a service worker. That's not true for somebody who works in a restaurant or a hotel or whatever. Um, those things did not continue seamlessly. And uh, those people were either laid off um, or they were furloughed or whatever. They had to stop doing their jobs. Okay. So this is kind of like, you know, Stuart Butterfield, right? Like he stopped glitch. Okay. So he's now stopped something. These people stopped something at the beginning of the pandemic. They were forced to do that. Like I was forced to quit graduate school because um, of what was going on with my health. Okay. So they're forced to stop now, flash forward, right? Vaccines, so on and so forth. And we have the great reopening. And with the great reopening, those people's jobs, the jobs that they used to have now open back up, they're now available to them again. And that's when you see this mass quitting because they all say, no, you know what? I've now had time to explore other things. And I, it's not for me. It's not what I want to do. And what's really important for people to understand is that they didn't quit to go you know, sit in a yurt or something, they quit to do a different job. They quit and did something else. Just like I quit graduate school and played poker. Stuart Butterfield quit Glitch and ended up developing Slack. Like this is kind of how it goes. Like you quit to start something new and they quit to, to start a new job. So I think this is such an important thing about like sometimes when we quit what or, or even if we're forced to quit, which is a form of quitting, right? If I get fired, the I, I, I've been forced to quit. Um, so that what it does is it opens us up to that exploration that we're otherwise not doing of the other things that we can do and allows us to examine what our values are, what makes us happy, what are the things that we're actually trying to achieve in life, and is the job that we're doing, the relationship we're in or whatever, um, is that actually helping us to achieve it? And very often we find out, no, once we do that reevaluation, re that it's not and we want to do something else. The other lesson from the Great Resignation is this really important collision of opportunity with quitting, right? So um, we have to remember that when they were quitting, it was also the great reopening. So that's when there's lots and lots of jobs available to switch to. So this is a very important piece of the puzzle is that when there's lots of opportunity, obviously we have lots more things to switch to. Um, and so quitting is going to be a lot easier under those circumstances. Now, sometimes that just happens because of... Um, you know, there was a pandemic and then everything opened back up that don't really have our control. But the lesson that uh, the lesson that we can take from that is that we ought to be actively trying to create opportunities for ourselves, because the more opportunities that we can create for ourselves, uh, the better off we're going to be when we discover that the thing we're doing isn't something that we actually want to do. And that's true even for people. In fact, I would say more so and more importantly, so for people who aren't in a privileged position. Right. So there are some people who they can't just up and quit their job because they need the paycheck. Um, and maybe because of the circumstances that they've grown up in, they aren't trained in a lot of things. So they're very lucky to get the job that they have and they can't just up and quit it. 
because they don't have a lot of opportunities to go to. For somebody in that position, it's even more imperative, like create one more opportunity for yourself, whether it's finding a way to go to night school or asking for extra training or extra responsibilities in your job or um, whatever you can do. One more opportunity is going to matter so much more to you. Is that going to be, are you going to be in the same position as someone like Stuart Butterfield? Of course not. Should we love to create a society where everybody has an equal um, access to to opportunity the opportunities that society affords you? Sure, like absolutely. But it's not the society that we live in. And so as an individual to understand because of the circumstances of how I was born, I'm limited in the opportunities that I have. But what is the agency that I can create for myself in terms of creating even one more opportunity? And what is that gonna do for me in terms of really improving the quality of my life so that I do have the option to quit if I don't like what I'm doing? This is why I love your your charity, your nonprofit as well, because you're enabling people even be able to make a decision. I mean, somebody could be stuck in a, an abusive relationship may not think they have any choices, it happens all the time. And they're often, often conditioned to think that as well by the abuser. So I, I, I love this about your work. I love that aspect that that we can help people. And, you know, you don't have to be from an impoverished background to experience that as well. So let, let's, um, I was thinking about where we could take it next. So I mentioned the store story, and you said you'd reveal. Yeah, but but I, I thought I thought we'd um, because you're an expert in cognitive biases. And for example, you, you get you tell us about sunk costs, you talk omission commission, status quo bias, endowment effect, Ikea effect, the kind of corollary of the endowment effect. Maybe we'll share a couple of those as almost lenses through which to listen to the story of the stall story, because they they are that story is essentially those biases in action there are so many forces that stop us from quitting um some of them we've talked about a little bit like uh you know this problem of we think of waste as a backward looking problem like if i quit now i'll have wasted everything um another way that expresses is if i quit now i can't get my money back so in the simplest sense like if i buy a stock at 50 and it's trading at 40 i don't want to sell it because Otherwise, how can I get back to 50, right? How can I get my money back? And of course, um, the way that you should be thinking about that is if I saw this stock today, would I buy it, right? And uh, only in conditions where you would buy it today should you continue to hold it. But we know that the path that we've been on, like but we've already lost to the cause, like time, effort, money, whatever affects us. So, so that would be a sunk cost affecting us. We know that ownership over, um, our ideas or, or things like if we build a business, this would be a problem for like a startup founder can stop us from quitting. Um, uh, this issue of like certainty, like that certainty sinking. And then we also have this issue of identity, the way that we become identified with the things that we do and the things that we believe. And it's hard to walk away from our identity. I mean, I certainly found this when I was facing quitting poker, um, like Stuart Butterfield, I definitely got to that decision too late, in my opinion. Um, and it was because like, I mean, it was really bad for me. I was a poker player on television. People would stop me places and be like, Oh, my God, you're that poker player. Um, and so then, you know, who am I going to be if I walk away? Right? That's like very hard. And I think that this all comes together, like so many of these forces come together in the story of a man named Harold Staub. 
Um, there's no reason you should have ever heard of Harold Stah. He's just a guy. Um, but he's a guy that I, 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 I heard about through his son, Barry Stah. And I think you'll recall that I had mentioned Barry Stah before as someone who really was one of the first people who, who blew up the intuition that when we get bad news, that we'll walk away. Um, and what he found is that, no, that's not true. When we get bad news, we'll actually uh, escalate our commitment to the cause. This is called escalation of commitment uh, and something that he spent his life studying that we actually double and triple down, like in the sense of like, I buy it at 50, it's trading at 40. And then I, not only will I hold it, but sometimes I'll buy more, right? Even though I wouldn't buy it today. Um, if I, if I were fresh to the decision. So he did a whole bunch of work on that. And so when I was, you know, for the book, I was talking to a whole bunch of different people, um, uh, you know, who had done research in this space. So, you know, Daniel Kahneman, Richard Thaler, Colin Kammerer, uh, and Barry Staw. And Barry Staw was telling me how he started thinking about escalation of commitment because of his fascination with the Vietnam War. So wars are a place where we can really see this escalation of commitment problem, um, where once we start to accrue losses, both the money spent on the war, um, also right, the national identity that's associated with you've decided to go into a conflict as a nation, um, that that becomes a problem. And then also as you start to lose lives, right? So this is kind of the worst kind of most tragic kind of cost that's associated with something um, in terms of war. And that feeling of those not wanting those people to have died in vain that make it very hard for us to extricate ourselves from a conflict once we've started. And I think we see that not just with the Vietnam War, which was the stated reason for Barry Staw uh, starting his work, but also with the war in Afghanistan. And then now with what's happening in Ukraine, you know, where people keep saying we need to give Putin an off ramp. And, and I just keep saying there is no off ramp for Putin because it's the same right? He's committed so much and his identity is tied up in that. And how do you actually extricate yourself from that? So that was why Barry Stott, at least consciously on the conscious level was studying it. But when he was talking to me about his work and the genesis of his work with the Vietnam War, he, he just mentioned an aside about his dad. And it was just a little tiny aside, which was that his dad was thinking about buying a business and Barry had taken some accounting classes. This was when Barry, would, before Barry had gotten a PhD, and he had taken some accounting classes in business school. And uh, his dad said, well, look at this balance sheet for this business. What do you think? And Barry spent about 45 minutes looking at it and then was like super confused that his father would want to buy this business. Um, and he said, well, dad, why do you want to buy this business? And his father came and like added 20% to the, you know, to the profits column and uh, subtracted uh, 20% from the losses column and said, that's why, because I'll be able to do that. And um, Barry thought this was very strange behavior. So he he just mentions this story as an aside to me. Well, um, I, I start to, you know, noodle on the information that Barry had given me. And I got a little stuck on this weird story with his dad. So I just said, oh, I want to find out more. So I wrote him and I said, hey, Barry, can we get on another Zoom? Um you know, because we had only talked about his scientific work, really, except for this one aside. I said, because I want to ask you more about your dad. And he was like, I don't know why you want to talk about my dad, but whatever. Okay, we'll get on a Zoom and talk about him. So we get on the Zoom and it is just an incredible story of escalation of commitment. So his father was named Harold, Harold Staw. Um, like many people, he moved west in the 40s. 
um, as you know, the West was booming with the defense industry and so on and so forth. So his family moved West. Uh, Shirley Posner's family also moved West. Shirley and Harold meet in California and marry. Um, and they have two children. Barry is one of them. And uh, they're trying to, you know, make their way in this in this post-war world. And they cobble together a little bit of money to buy um, a grocery store uh, in the Inland Empire, which is um, uh, just eat. It's a, a, a a hundred or so miles east of LA. So uh, they have this little grocery store and, you know, it's going fine, except that like there's a bunch of big grocery chains that are starting to come into the area. And Barry sort of recognize, sorry, Harold recognizes pretty early that um, the grocery business might not be the right thing to do because there's these big chains coming in. And he probably can't compete with them. So he sells the grocery store and with the money that he has for that, he starts a new idea and he he gets this little storefront um, and his idea is to sell appliances to union members because there's a huge factory, the Kaiser factory, which is, and and it's a unionized factory. So his idea is he's going to sell appliances to them at a discount. So he gets a little store that actually before he had it housed chickens. Um, the family like literally is like sweeping feathers out of the place to create it. He uses his his, the money that he has to buy some floor models. So he doesn't have any inventory, he just has floor models. And he founds the union store. And it's kind of like a KP, right? So the union workers can come, they look at the model, they pick out the refrigerator that they want. And there's, of course, in the 50s, everything is booming, right? So people need appliances, they're buying new houses. And then, the, you know, they would pick it out, he'll order it, and they get the refrigerator at a discount in comparison to other places they might. But but there's a requirement of being a union member. Well, this goes really well. He opens up a second location. That goes really well. He ends up dropping the name, the union requirement altogether and renames the stores um, ABC stores. Uh, gets a lease on a huge 50,000 square foot property in Montclair, um, California. Um and that now he starts branching out from appliances to basically like all kind of like household goods, the space that he couldn't fill, he sort of leased out to to other people like optometrists or whatever. But now he's become more like, um, I don't know if you're familiar because you're like a Kmart or a Walmart. Uh, or oh, something yeah, like yeah. That. yeah. Yeah. Okay. So it becomes much more like that kind of store, kind of like a one stop everything. So this is all booming. And he continues to acquire and build stores along this new highway that's stretching from where he is in 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 um, the Inland Empire to LA to the West, um, and actually ends up with some, some LA locations. Um, so this is booming. Now, uh, at some point in, in like the early, I think it was the early 60s, um, he gets an offer to merge with a similar outfit in Texas. Um, and Texas has something called Sage Stores that had started with a similar idea of selling only to government workers um, and had then branched out to be sort of like Kmart or Walmart-like. Um, and the Texas stores were doing great and the California stores were doing great. So they actually end up combining. And um, Barry Staw is the CEO of that combined organization. And his stock, according to public filings at that time, is worth $3 million. It's in the 60s. Like, he's rich. Okay. So then what happens, though, is that um, Kmart, which was originally um, SS Creech Company, Kmart starts to expand. And they start to open up locations 
sometimes like right across uh, or just down the street from the ABC stores. Now, this is only happening in California, not in Texas. So Walmart had been founded in Arkansas, but had not yet expanded across the country. It was still just an Arkansas store. So the Texas stores are not experiencing the same problem. Um, But the California stores are. And Kmart is starting to squeeze the California stores to the point where the California stores start to lose money. So the shareholders of this combined entity now demand action. And the action that they're demanding is that they sell off the California locations, which makes sense from an outside looking in kind of perspective. Like the Texas stores are thriving. They're not experiencing the same competitive environment. Um, And the California stores aren't doing well. And so, of course, you should sell off the losing assets and and keep the assets that are that are actually making money. Um, Barry Staw is resistant to this. He ends up getting sued by the shareholders. One of his best friends, who was also the lawyer for the entity, basically abandons him and files the lawsuit for the Texas uh, shareholders. So this, again, like sort of like Muhammad Ali with like, you know, Ferdy Pacheco being like, hey, and now I'm going to quit you. His lawyer and like best friend says, dude, you're, you're like out of your mind here and actually switches sides in the lawsuit. So Barry Staw, though, refuses to relent and comes to a settlement. They're going to unscramble the eggs and the entity basically unwinds and the shareholders keep the Texas stores and Harold uh, gives up any interest whatsoever in the combined entity. In other words, he gives up an interest in the Texas stores and he ends up with the California stores, which remember are losing money. Um, so now remember he had amassed a pretty good sized personal fortune. He starts to dump the personal fortune into the California stores in order to try to save the day. This is somewhere around the point that, that he shows Barry a store he's considering buying and and Barry's like, what dad, I don't even know why you're doing that. Um, and so he's really like, he's losing his personal fortune to try to save the day. Um, and then at some point, I think it was in around 1970 or so, uh, a, a chain called um, Fred Meyer uh, was trying to get a foothold in California. They were an Oregon store trying to get a foothold in California and they offered to buy him out. Uh, Harold Stahl refused because he felt that they weren't offering him enough. Um, so he refuses that kind of bailout. And then uh, eventually he ends up bankrupt. So uh, this all the California stores go out of business and all that he's left with is that big, 50,000 foot property. Cause he had a, you know, he had sort of a lifetime lease on that, um, which, you know, sort of sustained him. I mean, not in any kind of high style, but it sustained him, um, until his death. Um, and it's just, it's like a tragic story of Harold Stodd, like this brilliant man who created this incredible business, but then wouldn't let go. And so the question is, why not? Well, We can certainly see some sunk cost here, right? In terms of Fred Meyer offering him a deal that wasn't going to make up for everything that he had, that he had put in himself in order to try to save the store. He just didn't feel like the deal was enough. You know, even though obviously that shouldn't matter at all, it's, is Fred Meyer offering you a a good price for what it's worth today? So we, we can see the sunk cost problem there. We can also see this issue of ownership, right? Because what are the stores that, that he built? himself what what is the part of that business that he founded that he created that he's endowed to 
Well, it's the California part of the business. So you might think logically, well, since he's CEO of the whole thing, that everything would be the same for him and he would just be trying to stick with the profitable assets. But the problem is that he he didn't create the Texas stores. He didn't own them in the same way that he owned the California stores. And we can clearly see that preventing him from quitting. And then that also gets into the identity problem is that, again, because he built it, that was part of his identity. He He was the creator and founder of the ABC stores. Again, not those Texas stores. And it's very hard to walk away from your identity. It's a really hard thing to do. So when it came down to it, you know, we think about one thing that that makes it really hard for us to quit is that moment that we go from failing to having failed. And even though in this particular case, letting go of those California stores would actually have made that company more successful, it wouldn't have made Harold Staw feel that way. Because for Harold Staw, it would mean that his thing, the California stores had failed. Up until that point, they're only failing. And that is a very big distinction. The minute that they sell them off and he gives up the cause is the minute he says they failed. And that is a moment that we do not want to face. We don't want that conversion to occur. And so we'll keep going and continue, you know, to put great resources, this is the escalation problem, into in, into the cause, uh, you know, until the very end, until you've fallen into the crevasse, until there's no choice but to file bankruptcy. That's about the moment that we're willing to walk away. So I did ask, I did ask Barry, so are you sure that you weren't studying escalation of commitment because of your dad? You know, and he was like, oh, I kind of never thought of that. Maybe. Um, I would say I think so. It's funny you say that because I, when I read it, you you wrote it beautifully. By the way, the case was like a, a Harvard business case. You know, I, I I was like, and then I found out you uncovered it through your conversations with Barry because you sent me down a rabbit hole of Barry Staw and all the amazing work that he's done. But then I thought, well, just like Annie got sick, and that sent her down a different path. Harold Stowe's path sent Barry down this path, and he's revealed all this magnificent work because, my God, his work is phenomenal. We can go through, like, basically, if so he was coming from the motivational side of things. So when we look at, so let me explain what I mean by that. So there's the motivational side of psychology, and then there's the more cognitive side of psychology. So when we think about cognitive bias, we're thinking about systemic errors that we're making in our reasoning right? So, or sorry, let me see this again. When we think about cognitive psychology, like biases, we're thinking about systematic errors in in reasoning. So this would be like the Thaler, Kahneman, and Tversky side of the world, uh, something like uh, sunk cost, which is a predictable and, you know, consistent error, endowment effect, so on and so forth. So uh, when you get to the motivational side of things, you start to get into things like cognitive dissonance, right? Like when the world conflicts with the things you believe, we're motivated to resolve that dissonance in some way, very often in favor of our beliefs over the facts. Um, In the case of escalation of commitment, that would be a more of a motivational way of of looking at this quitting problem where uh, when we get this bad news, we want, you know, we're motivated to recover the cause. 
right? So that's a, so I know it's a slight distinction, but it's actually pretty uh, quite a large one within the field, but we can see sort of the motivational explanations converging with the more systematic biased explanations um, when it comes to, when it comes to uh, the problem with quitting. And when you look across Barry Stahl's work, he's really sort of covering off like all of these, uh, all of these issues in his work. And that's why I think it's so amazing, because when you think about our bias against quitting, if you look at the work that he did, he's getting he sort of gets sort of all the different points in. And I think the place where it becomes uh, most clear is actually in his work on the National Basketball Association, the NBA um, in the U.S. So he did a whole bunch of stuff on business cases. But but I think that the the work that he did in professional sports is actually the most telling. Um, So he was looking at. Uh, the draft in the 80s. And essentially what he wanted to know is separate and apart from the performance of a player. Okay, so separate and apart from how productive are you? How many field goals do you score? How many rebounds do you get? You know, so on and so forth. Um, Is there an effect of just the draft order on what happens with that player's career in two different ways. One is how much time did they get on the court and how long did they stay with the team? So from an objective standpoint, and I assume you agree with this, Aiden, having played rugby, that um, the team's motivation objectively should be to have the best players on the field and the best players on their team. And we know that we can measure what it means to be the best player. We know that. So. The question then becomes, are there other influences outside of what clearly should be the factors that would motivate somebody to keep somebody on the court? Um, And so he wanted to know about draft order for the reason that now we can sort of combine all of these things about like sunk cost, for example, because uh, the draft pick is quite valuable, particularly ones that are in the first round, right? Like this is a very valuable resource that you're spending in in order to get that person on your team. Um, people in higher draft orders also get bigger contracts. So that is also more effort. effort. Um, you're more endowed to the decision because uh, you're choosing that player over all others. And then this is also really important. And back to the kind of point about Putin and national identity is that this is, you become tied with the team's identity. You know, like those those top draft picks very much become entwined you know, intertwined with the um, with the identity of the team itself. So, so he looked at that and he said, "Okay, we're going to measure player productivity, and then we're going to look at draft order and see if that has an independent effect on both playing time and uh, length of contract." And he found out that they did. In fact, if you look at um, the draft order for every draft pick, so you know, one versus two versus three the player got 23 minutes more during the whole season on the court and their contracts tended to last one or two years longer. So this was obviously done in the eighties. I think it was such impressive work. Colin Kammerer then replicated it in the nineties, found the same effect. And then it was replicated again uh, after in sort of the, the teens the, the of the 2000s, the, the teens in the 2000s, for the reason that somebody did make the point, well, you know, now we have a lot more sports analytics and maybe with that teams have gotten more rational. And the answer is yes, they have gotten more rational. The effects are smaller 
than what Barry Staw found, but they're still significant and they still exist. So I think that that was some of his most important work because it really kind of wraps everything up in a bow. Uh, in terms of seeing how incredibly irrational we can be about these, particularly in this case, remember I said part of the problem that we have is that uh, we don't know all the facts. But with with analytics, we do, right? We have all the information we need in order to know, should we be playing this player? Should we not? Should we keep this contract? Should we not? Um, and yet we're irrational about it for all the reasons that Barry pointed out way back in his first paper um, on escalation of commitment. I saw that Annie the whole time where a team would buy a player in from overseas and then feel they have to play that player even though the player is not playing well because it's well I have to validate somebody's going to get fired if this guy doesn't get yeah it's amazing by the way just for our audience right so that's the book it's beautifully written it's got great stories like the the Harold Stowe story that you just heard there there's glitch in there there's the story of Asana versus Flow where you when you're biased, you can hear information differently as well. There's so many great stories in there. There's personal reinvention, gymnasts turned into business people, great stories. But there, I thought we'd share just a way of people to manage this to, to get a take a takeaway here, which I loved when you talked about thinking and expected value. And the brilliant case study you give of taxi drivers. Okay, so how do we decide when to stick and when to quit, right? So there's lots of stuff in the book that, you know, kill criteria, um, monkeys and pedestals. I mean, these are things that we haven't been able to get to because we've been more discussing the problem and just saying, look, you should be better at quitting. But there is a lot of practical things in the book for people who are looking practical advice. But uh, if we were to take a step back from those sort of practical things that you can do, um, you know, it's all about, right, as I said, grit gets you to stick to things that are worthwhile, but it also gets you to stick to things that aren't worthwhile. And the key is to tell the difference what's worthwhile and what's not. And that's an issue of what we would call expected value. So expected value is quite simply just what are the gains versus what are the losses that you might incur on any particular path. So um, what we're trying to do is be doing things that are going to cause us to gain ground toward our goals over the long run. Uh, so that would be positive expected value choices and not cause us to either lose ground, that'd be negative expected value, or we can also think about it as we don't want things that have a very low expected value in comparison to something else that might have a very high expected value. So uh, a simple way to think about it is when you buy a stock, uh, you ass I assume you're buying it because you think that you'll make money over the long run. Uh, so you're making a calculation that it's positive expected value. Um, and what we don't want to do is get stuck, for example, in a stock that's either once we've discovered the new information, we made a projection. Now we've discovered it's actually negative expected value. In other words, it rates to lose over the long run. We would want to sell that um, or uh, we don't want to stick to it if there's another investment that we could move to that would actually make a lot more money. And this is essentially the kind of calculation that we're making for anything that we do. So as an example, if we're choosing between two jobs and we choose job A over job B, uh, what is implied in that is that given the things that I value that I'm trying to gain from this job, which I'm sure is some kind of money, sense of fulfillment, maybe stability, like there could be all sorts of things that I'm trying to gain that I think that job A has the higher expected value. So expected value is not objective in the sense that um, it has to do with what you're trying to gain. 
right? So, so I just want to be clear about that. So uh, a job that might be positive expected value for me might be negative expected value for you because you might be looking to maximize for different things than I'm trying to maximize for. So I might be trying to maximize for stability. You might be trying to maximize for um, total amount of money you could possibly earn as an example. So we would, we would have different calculations, but we're both thinking in expected value, if that makes sense. Now, uh, we're really bad at this. Um, and I think that the cab drivers really kind of show that. So just like poker players are trying to uh, spend the maximum amount of time playing hands that are positive expected value and minimize their time playing hands that are not as they discover that information. Um, cab drivers are trying to maximize the amount of earning amount of money that they earn over the course of their time in the cab. And so a Colin Cameron, who I had mentioned before, did a study um, looking at uh, the behavior of cab drivers in New York City in the 1980s. So this is pre-Uber. Um, and the way that it worked in New York was that a cab would have, a, a, you, in order to own a cab, you'd have to buy a medallion. Those medallions were very expensive. So most cab drivers were actually renting the cab from, from a medallion owner. And they would rent the cab in uh, 12-hour shifts. So no, now the cab drivers aren't driving 12 hours a day, obviously. They're choosing when they want to drive and when they aren't. And what Cameron wanted to find out is, are they actually maximizing their expected value? In other words, what they're going to earn over the lifetime of these choices of when they, they drive. And simply put, he had all of the trip sheets. And so he could see how quickly the fares were coming in. Um, and a rat, he said, well, look, a rational actor is going to spend a lot of time in the cab when the fares are coming fast and furious and obviously not spend a lot of the time in the cab when there's very few fare, fares and they're very far between because that's not a particularly good use of their time. So he then looked at the trip seats to see if that's what the cab drivers were doing. And he was very surprised to discover that they do the reverse. That when there's lots and lots of fares coming in, um, they quit very quickly. They don't drive very long. And when there are very few fares coming in, they go forever. So they've actually flipped it from an expected value standpoint. So that's very strange. Um, in fact, so strange that he, when he was looking, he said, well, if they actually were to follow the um, sort of rational path, they would make 15% more than they were. And in fact, if they had just said, I'm only going to drive six hours a day. So essentially just been random about it. Um, then they would have made 8% more than they actually were. So that's pretty shocking. Um, so he wanted to know why. And I think this is really important for us to understand as decision makers. So we wanted to know why. Um, and the why of it was that they had set an earnings goal for themselves each day. So that earnings goal was say $300, let's say. And as soon as they hit the earnings goal, they quit. So what did that mean? When the fares were coming in fast, they got to 300 really fast, they quit. When they were coming in slow, they stayed in their cab forever. And I think this now gets us back to this Everest problem. We're not going to circle back and tie it up in a nice bowl. Why does it feel so bad to quit 300 feet from Everest? Because you set a goal and you don't want to stop short of the goal. But once you reach the goal, you're sort of done, right? Like nobody running a marathon keeps running afterwards because they feel good. And in fact, someone who's perfectly capable of running a marathon after running a 5K also doesn't keep running because you've reached the goal. So, so goals were making them stop too soon. 
when the conditions were really good and stick too long when they weren't because it was too painful to walk away before you'd reached the summit, before you'd actually gotten to the goal, right? And this is generally a problem. We think about um, we think about goals as sort of across the board good, but here we can see the downside of goals, that it gets you to stay gritty in situations when you shouldn't. And in fact, here we see that it can also get you to quit in situations that you ought to stick. So it causes you to miscalibrate. Annie, I could absolutely talk to you all day. I would not walk away from this conversation. It's been absolutely fascinating. Thank you for all the work that you do, your brilliant books. I hope we get to talk again in the future. For those people who are interested in your keynotes, your workshops, your consulting, because you help companies from hedge funds to sales teams, knowing when to manage the funnel, how to be better with their funnel, etc. Where can people find you? Yeah, it's pretty easy. It's just my name, <laughs> AndyDuke.com. Um, for the time being, you can find me on Twitter at Annie Duke. Um, and then, uh, you know, I mean, I'm on all the usual places like LinkedIn and, and whatnot. I also have a newsletter. If you go to AndyDuke.com, you will see uh, uh, archives of the newsletter and an ability to, uh, to subscribe. It doesn't come out weekly, but it comes out when I find something interesting that I want to chat about. Um, to my to people who hear me and you can also get links to for example this podcast there'll, there'll be a link to this podcast over there um, and there's a contact form there and that's the easiest way to get in touch with me fantastic well thank you so much for your time author of quit the power of knowing when to walk away Annie Duke thank you for joining us thank you so much this was really fun I could have listened to Annie Duke all day I hope you enjoyed that episode don't forget there's a copy of her brilliant new book quit up for grabs on the innovationshow.io newsletter. Before we finish, it remains for me to say thank you to our sponsor Zai, boldly transforming the future of financial services with a suite of embedded products and services enabling businesses to manage multiple payment workflows and move funds with ease. You can find Zai at hellozai.com.